0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Just as we're standing, let's pray. Father, we thank you for that sure word that we've sung about. And we thank you too for the one to whom it points, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his love for us. And we pray now that uh, by in your grace, you would uh, send your spirit to work in our hearts, that as we turn to your word, that the love of Christ would live afresh for us in our hearts and that you would steer that so that it overflows into love for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. What I want to uh, do this morning is turn to the passage that we read. It'll help if you've got that in front of you. This afternoon, I've... Well, anyway, it'll be a bit different this afternoon. Uh, I have to wait and see what that's about. Um, What I want us to see this morning is that the Christian community... It's the main context in which you will experience divine love and joy. God has given us the church, God has given you the church, to help you enjoy him. God has given you the church to help you enjoy him. Now I realize that's a bold claim. Uh, You might just take a moment to look around the room. And you might think that's not terribly promising. (laughs) This is the context in which I'm to enjoy God and experience divine joy. But what I want to suggest that is if you look with the eyes of faith, you will see in your brothers and sisters a hundred ways in which divine joy and love are made complete. Love is a key characteristic of the Christian family. In fact, it's a defining characteristic. So much so that love is one of the ways you spot a true Christian. John is writing here to a church in turmoil. Uh, Later on in chapter 2, we discover that prominent people have left the church. And in fact, they're trying to lead the church astray. But they're not the real deal. And one of the ways you can tell is that they don't really love the church family. Now, in order to make sense of what John is saying here, there's one thing that you need to know. And it's this. John defines obedience. Throughout this section, we're going to be looking particularly at chapter 2, verses 3 to 11. Throughout this section, John particularly defines obedience as love you have a look at verse 7 he says I'm not writing you a new command but an old one well that's okay that's very straightforward except that then in verse 8 he immediately says that he is writing a new command so that's a little bit confusing isn't it I'm not writing you a new command I am writing you a new command what's going on I think the answer is that John has some specific words of Jesus in mind as he writes here Remember on the night before he died, Jesus said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So the the command to love is an old command because John's hearers heard it from the very first moment they became Christians. One of the first things they learned as new Christians. that, that Christ had given this command that we should love one another. It's as old as they are, as it were, as Christians. You've heard it since the beginning, he says in verse seven, and yet it's also a new command because that's how Jesus describes it. And what makes it, it is the new command. And what makes it new is Jesus, Jesus himself, the example of Jesus. He tells us that we're to love one another as I have loved you. In verse 6, John says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. What does it mean to live as Jesus did? It means to love as Jesus loved. So, throughout as we sort of navigate our way through these verses it 's going to help you if you remember that obeying the commands of jesus in john 's mind, not, not necessarily everywhere you go, but here particularly in john 's mind, obeying the commands of Jesus means obeying the command to love, and living like Jesus means loving like jesus that 's hold that in your head that 's what 's in john 's head hold that in your head. And everything becomes a little bit more straightforward. These verses are all about love, love in the Christian family. Chapter second half of chapter one and the first couple of verses of chapter two. They're all about sin and forgiveness. In fact, the word sin is there in verse seven, eight, nine, ten, and in one and two of chapter two. So that's pretty much every verse it's just completely absent in. The passage we're looking at, 3 to 11. The focus has shifted. These verses are all about love. But these two sections do have something in common. In both sections, John rejects three false claims. In the section on sin and forgiveness, there were three false claims about sin. Each of them begins, if we claim, or if we say, if we claim to be without sin, then we deceive ourselves. You remember that kind of thing? Well, in this section, verses three to 11 of chapter two, we have another set of three false claims, each beginning in the same way in the NIV. It's either whoever says or whoever claims, but it's the same in in the Greek original. Whoever says or whoever claims. Here's the first false claim. It's there in verse four. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person. So here is someone who claims to know Jesus, but he doesn't do what he commands. What is it that he commands? That we love one another in the church family. Second false claim, verse six, whoever claims to live in him must love as Jesus did. So here is someone claiming to live in Jesus, but he doesn't live as Jesus lived. How did Jesus live? He loved people. He loved his disciples. Third false claim, verse nine. If anyone claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister, he is still in darkness. Hate, of course, is the opposite of love. Here is someone who doesn't love their brothers and sisters. And so their claim to be in the light is proved false. In each case, the problem is someone who does not love the church family probably these false teachers, they'd given up on this church. They had, as far as they were concerned, they had moved on to to bigger and better things, to a deeper knowledge of God, to greater spiritual enlightenment. In their minds, they've moved on to higher things and they've left these sort of ordinary Christians behind. But they don't love the brothers and sisters and so their claims are false. How do you distinguish between false Christianity and authentic Christianity? One sign is whether people love the church family. My friend Rob is half English and half Australian. He has an English father and an Australian mother. He's lived in England and he's lived in Australia. He has dual citizenship. So is he English or is he Australian? Well, if you ever talk to him about cricket, as I often do, especially during an Ashes series, his true identity is quickly revealed. There's no doubt that he's English. Cricket, rugby, football, these, these often reveal where a person's true allegiance is. It's the same with the Christian community. Does someone belong to the light or to the darkness? Are they a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ or are their claims to know Christ false? Their identity will quickly be revealed in their attitude to the church family. Do they love the brothers and sisters? It's a good sign of a person's true allegiance. Okay, that's the negative. Uh, That's sort of one way to navigate the sort of claims that people make or the versions of Christianity. Do the people love the church family? But here's the lovely thing. Along with every false claim, John gives a lovely promise, a kind of counter-promise. That's where I want us to spend our time. Lovely, wonderful, positive encouragements to love one another. In fact, there's a lovely little moment in verse Uh, seven in in the NIV, it says, dear friends. It's literally loved ones. And so John is saying, these people, these uh, rather sort of uppity Christians, people who claim to know Christ, who've left the church, who kind of look down on you, they may hate you, but I love you. You're my loved ones. And then John says three things about Christian family love. First of all, Loving our church family is the fulfillment of love for God. Each of these positive encouragements comes as the flip side of one of of these uh, uh, false claims. But uh, here's the first one, verse 5. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. Remember that obeying his word here in this little section here, obeying his word for John means obeying the command to love one another. If we love one another, then our love for God is made complete. What does that mean? I, I think it means it's sort of fully developed, it reaches its goal, it finds fulfillment. Our love for God finds fulfillment. In our love for our brothers and sisters. Or, or put it another way, love, loving one another in the church family is the proper way to love God. The great reformer Martin Luther says, said to us at one point, we don't do good works for God. What, what's he going to do with them? He, he, he doesn't need them. It's not like God is up in heaven, sort of feeling lonely or deficient in some way, and we need to come along and do something for him. He is complete and full in himself. He doesn't need them. Instead, we do good works for other people. It's not that we do good for God. Instead, we have good from God. But the good that we have from God is then meant to flow out to others. This is how uh, Martin Luther puts it. We conclude, therefore, that a Christian lives not in himself, but in Christ and in his neighbor. Otherwise, he's not a Christian. He lives in Christ through faith and in his neighbor through love. By faith, he is caught up beyond himself into God. By love, he descends beneath himself into his neighbor. Love for God is fulfilled in love for the Christian family. And by the way, here, we're not talking about, when we talk about loving the church, we're not talking about loving the church as an event. You know, it's it's not a case of saying, I love going to church. I find the services so encouraging. If if that's true, by the way, that's great. Very happy for you. It's not what we're talking about here. Nor are we talking about loving the church as an ideal. You know, I, I love the idea of the universal church spread across the world. By the way, that's great too. But what John is talking about here is loving real people. The people in the room. Have another little look round. What he's talking about is about loving for you. What he's talking about is loving these people. With all their quirks and failings. So easy, isn't it, to, to kind of get stirred up. Loving the church. Yeah, we love the church. But what John means is loving the person sat next to you and in front of you and behind you and with all their Weirdness. It means sharing your life with real people. It means being an active part of your house group, your home group. You can't love God on your own. Love for God only becomes complete when you love other people. You've got to be part of a community. That's what it means to obey God. That's what it means to be like Jesus. That's what it means to know Jesus. If you claim to know Jesus, but don't love your brother and sister, how can the love of God be in you? So loving other people in the Christian family is the fulfillment of our love for God, or, or let's put it another way, is fulfilling for two reasons. First of all, we enjoy God when we receive love. We, we, we find this joy. We, the Christian community is a place of joy when we receive God. The joy, we, we enjoy God when we receive love. A little bit later on in chapter 4, John says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. It's an extraordinary statement, isn't it? If we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. It's the same kind of language that he uses in in chapter two, verse five, of God's love, of love being made complete. In chapter two, our love for God is made complete. In chapter four, it's love from God that is made complete. I think John's point is this. We can't see God. That's how how it begins, isn't it? No one has ever seen God. We can't see God. But, But we can see one another. And so we see the love of the invisible God in the love of the visible church. God's love becomes a reality that can be seen and heard and touched in the life of the Christian community. And and, and brotherly love, sisterly love, is not a poor substitute for the real thing. It's not that, you know, you could have love from God, but you've got to kind of make do with love from your brother and sister. No, no, no. Brotherly love is divine love. God loves us through the love of other Christians. He loves us in other ways, of course, supremely in the gift of his son. But the love we experience from one another starts from God. The brother who speaks a word of comfort to you, the sister who bakes a cake for you, the friend who welcomes you into their home, they are the hands and feet of the invisible God. When a brother hugs you, Christ is hugging you. When a sister sits by your hospital bed, Christ is sitting by your bedside. When a friend weeps with you, Christ is weeping with you. One of the big ways we experience our relationship with God is through the love of the church family. We enjoy God when we receive love. But also, we enjoy God when we give love, when we show love. What is, this is a question that Paul asks, just think about how you would answer this question. What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? How would you answer that question? What is our hope, our joy, our crown, in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? What's your hope? What's your glory? What's your boast? It's the thing you're most proud of. I'm tempted to, sort of get some answers, but no, we won't go that far. You all think, you know... Of our home, of our career, of our job, maybe, or maybe you're ahead of me here, and you're thinking, "Okay, hang on a minute. I know the Christ. That's it. It's Christ, isn't it? The righteousness of Christ. That'll be my boast, and that'd be a good answer, by the way, because that's the answer Paul gives elsewhere. But not here. This is one Thessalonians two. This is what he says. What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? It's writing to the Thessalonian church. It's you. Indeed, he says, you are our glory and joy. You are our glory and joy. Is that what you say about Christchurch forward? So it's much the same thing to the church in Philippi. He speaks of them as you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. I think today we would say pride and pride and joy. What's your pride and joy? Paul's pride and joy was the church family. Well, John says something very similar here at the beginning of 1 John. He says in chapter 1 verse 4, we write this to make our joy complete. I think you might have expected him to say to make your joy complete. I'm writing this to to, to bring you some joy, to make your joy complete. But he doesn't say that. He says our joy. You know, he's writing this letter to encourage this church. We've just had some people leave them. They're all in turmoil. He writes to encourage them, but he says, the reason I'm writing is to make our joy complete, not, not your joy. Why is that? I think it is because for John, your joy is our joy. In other words, what John enjoys is seeing other Christians experience joy. There's nothing he likes more than people rejoicing in Christ. And that's complete joy. This is how he describes it. Pursuing my joy in Christ can be self-defeating. If it's a kind of self-centered exercise in self-fulfillment, then I think you will find that joy will elude you. Even joy in Christ But if we pursue one another's joy, then our joy and love are made complete. So if you want to find joy, you may need to stop looking for joy and instead start working for the joy of one another. Strange fact is you will never really be happy while you're pursuing your own happiness. Uh, Try this thought experiment with me. Think about the Christians you know who are most preoccupied with their own needs and desires. And also think about the Christians you know who are unhappy. I suspect you'll find a big overlap. Now... Now, think about I, the Christ, I, Christians you know. I don't, don't do this out loud, okay? Just might, might be. Now, just. But, but I do want you to think of real people, not just some sort of abstract. You know, think of. List the people in your head. List the Christians you know who think about others the most. Okay? In, in the church family here, think of the Christians who are always thinking about other people, always serving other people. I suspect you'll find that they're among the happiest Christians you know. You can come and talk to me afterwards and tell me whether that's right or not. That's, that's my observation. Again and again. It's counterintuitive. But the more you deny yourself in order to love others, the more joy you experience. Where do you go for joy? A weekend break, a new gadget, bigger salary, home improvement. What, you know what is it you think? If I could just get that, then I would be happy." John says, "If you really want to find joy, then pursue the joy in Christ of your brothers and sisters. Loving our church family is the fulfillment of love for God. And then secondly, loving our church family is the distinctive of Christ-like love. Loving our church family is the distinctive of Christ-like love. What's new about the new command? After all, God had already told people to love one another. It's right there, all the way through the Bible. What's, what makes the new command new? Well, listen again to the words of Jesus. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. What makes it new is the example of Jesus. We're to love like Jesus. And that's, as we said, is how John himself explains it. Verse eight, for example. Yet I'm not writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him. If you want to know what this command to love looks like, then look at the Lord Jesus Christ. And the context in which that command was given, in which Jesus said a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. The context in which that was given was the night before he died when he washed the feet of his disciples. Do you remember that story? They're eating together, Jesus gets up from the table, wraps a towel around his waist and washes their feet. He takes the role of a slave among them in order to serve them. And as John tells that story, he tells us three things that Jesus knew as he washed the feet of his disciples. The first one is that he knew his time had come. In other words, he knew that he would be crucified the following day. It's very tempting, isn't it, for us to say, I'm the one with the problem. I'm I'm the one who should be loved. I, I, I need serving in this situation. Someone needs to look out for me. I suspect, whatever your problem is, I suspect being crucified trumps it. If I could say that respectfully. (laughs) The example that Jesus gives us that is to shape our love for one another shows us that in those moments we shouldn't wait to be loved. We should love. We should serve. Second thing that John tells us Jesus knew was that God had given him all authority. Very tempting for us to say, isn't it? I'm, I'm too important to do that. I'm too busy. But the example of Jesus, you know, other people do that kind of thing. I leave Bible studies. I don't do washing up. Or whatever it might be. But the example of Jesus shows us that in those moments we shouldn't wait to be served we should take the initiative. And then the third thing that John tells us Jesus knew what well, he knew uh, that Judas would betray him. And then he washes his feet. Very tempting for us to say, I'm happy to serve, but not after all they've done to me. They don't deserve it. But the example of Jesus shows us that in those moments, we shouldn't wait for people to change. We should love them as they are. What makes Christ, Christian love distinctive is that it echoes the love of Christ. And what was distinctive about that? Jesus didn't love us because we were lovely. It wasn't his love wasn't generated by us. It wasn't kind of a response to our loveliness. Jesus, it wasn't that Jesus thought, "Whoa, those are cool, charming, fun people to be around." I'm going to hang out with them. The love of Jesus was the overflow of the love of the Trinitarian God. God's love, the love between the Father and the Son in the Spirit, overflowed to us in Christ. It just sort of was generated from within God, out of sheer grace. And the same way, Christian love is the overflow of God's love to us. It comes from God's love and then flows out to one another. Chapter 4, again, John says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. That's the distinctive of Christian love. It doesn't come from the person we love. It's not that we look at that person and go, I'd really like to... Hang around with that person, you know, they kind of draw out this love from us. No, it comes from God. Again, chapter four, dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. If you simply hang out with a group of peers, people of your age or people you find fun or people of your interests, you're not loving like Christ. It's self-interest. I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. It's great. Have, have, by all means, have a good time. But don't call it Christian love. You're not doing anything different from the world around you. What's distinctive about Christ-like love is the way that it crosses personality divides, ethnic divides, generational divides, social divides, singles and married, young and old. So love the people in your local church. Spend time with them. Build community with them. I realize that that hanging out with your peers offers a kind of quick reward. You'll have a fun time. But loving your home group will bring deep and lasting rewards. Loving the church fam- family is the fulfillment of love for God. Loving the church family is the distinctive of Christ-like love. And then, thirdly, loving our church family is the beginning of the new age. Let me read verse eight again. I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in Him. That's okay, isn't it? We we can make sense of that. The, the reality of what it means to love is seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what John says. I'm writing a new commandment. Its truth is seen in him and you. This distinctive, Christ like Christian love that is seen in Jesus is also seen in you. Did you see that coming? Is that what you would have written? And then John goes on. Because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. You know, one, another reason the command is new is because love is a characteristic of the new age, the coming age, God's new world. And through Christ, we belong to that new age. And in Christ, that new age takes shape in the church family. It's This is astonishingly encouraging. It's truth is seen in him and you. The distinctive love that is seen in Christ, the love of the new age, is seen in your church family. It's seen in your home group. I I believe that. I believe that is true of your home group. It's very easy for us to see the faults of our church family. And I'm sure that there are faults. We are a community of sinners. But just stand back for a moment and realize what a remarkable thing the church family is. What a remarkable thing your church family is. I just, a little while ago, one of the guys in our church made a video of our church. Uh, he was... He was, uh, to, he was um, from the United States and he was sort of raising support and, and so on. Anyway, he made a video of our church and it's just shots of our church doing things together and a nice little bit of music in the background. He showed it to me and I looked at this video. And, you know, I, like, I mean, I was walking into this. I mean, you know, I, eyes wide open, everything, but I looked at it and I thought, really, this is true. I thought, wow, I would really love to be part of a church like that. It's true, it's absolutely true. I mean, it's ridiculous, but it's true. And then I thought, I am part of a church like that. This is my church. You know, I think so often we get caught up in the fact, you know, washing up needs to be done and someone's late and someone's complaining because they don't like this food that's being served or whatever it might be. And you think, oh, well, you know, if only we could, I'd, I'd love to be part of one of those cool churches, you know, just stand back for a moment and look at your home group. It's such a beautiful thing. It's such a privilege. Here is a group of sinners saved by grace with all our differences and yet committed to one another and committed to Christ. It's a miracle. It really is. I'm, I'm not being rhetorical there. It is literally a miracle. It is the fruit of the cross. It is the power of the Spirit. And it's a miracle that you get to experience week by week by week by week. And there is nothing else like it in forward. Nowhere else where such a diverse group of people come together to be family. Your church family, your house group, not some abstract, I'm not talking here about ideals. I'm talking about your church family, your home group, is the fulfillment of the ages. It's the dawn of a new age. Sheffield is a city of darkness, spiritual darkness. With people blinded by sin, oppressed by evil, cut off from God, facing his judgment. But John says in verse eight, the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. And then he says in verse 10, anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light There is nothing in them to make them stumble. The darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Be one of those lovely rhetorical statements. Except John here is talking about loving one another in the church family. He's talking about your house group. And it may have all sorts of problems and failings. It's all very ordinary. But just look beyond that for a moment. See it as John sees it. He sees the new age taking shape in your home group. You are the kind of prototype of the new creation, of a new humanity. Proof of concept. Future has broken into history and can be seen in your home group. Sheffield is a city of darkness, but light is dawning in this dark world, it's dawning in your church. Every time you plant a new church, every time you start a new home group, every time you open your home to other people, it's as if God switches on a light. You might just want to think about looking over Sheffield at night, you know, and you just see those little lights. If you go up on to Ringing Low and look down across the city... Just think of that as a kind of metaphor, a picture of what is happening through your church. Light is shining through Christian love, the light of Christ and the dawn of a new day. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for that miracle. Uh, The miracle of the cross, the miracle of the Spirit, the creation of a new humanity already taking shape in this church, in the home groups represented here, in the lives and love of uh, your people. Now uh, we pray that we would uh, Recognize that miracle and that you would enable us to participate fully in it, to love one another as Christ has loved us and to find our joy to find love made complete as we love one another to experience the reality of the invisible God in the very tangible reality of our brothers and sisters uh, we ask it in Jesus name